trust that you all have had a, a good week. Uh, we had a group down and go down to St. Augustine with us this past weekend for the uh, Royal Romance uh, marriage dinner that they did down there on Friday night, and we had a great time uh, doing that. Uh, got to show off the church down there a little bit. They've done quite a bit of work, um, and so it's exciting to see what's going on there. And, uh, you know, again, we're connected with that, so, you know, everything they're doing there, everything that's happening in Nicaragua and Puerto Rico, the churches that we have in those areas, uh, we're connected with that. and We're just as much a part of that um, as they are in their own town. So I know I heard a testimony this past week that, um, I, I want to say it was this past Sunday, maybe the Sunday before that, uh, Puerto Rico had 13 people in service, which is awesome. So they're growing. People are getting attached and, 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 and hearing about the church, and um, they're doing just what we're doing. Amen? So it's good. But um, we had a great weekend doing that, and it got cold. But I think by uh, Thursday, it's going to be uh, 76 again. Okay. Uh, that's how people get sick, man. I mean, we got to, like, stay on top of this, you know, rebuking the enemy thing because... Uh, that's some crazy stuff, but um, it's cold now, but it's going to warm up um, here pretty soon. So let's go to Second Kings chapter 4. Um, let me start you off with what we're doing. Last week, I, we started a new series called 180. Um, and most of you that were here for New Year's and throughout January, you know, I talked a lot about changes, making life changes, uh, letting 2012 be different than 2011 and what were the New Year's resolutions that we made in January of 2011 that we came to December 31st and they're still there? We, we didn't make the changes. Now it's 2012 and we're making the same resolutions. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of, repeat, tired of repeating the same resolutions. I want to see a change. I want to see a change in my life, the, 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 a change with my finances and a change with my relationship with God and change in my family and in my home and in my job and, and these type of things. So... Um, you know, we spent last month talking about the kingdom of God and laying that foundation, but I just felt that we needed to stay on this course of change here for a little while. Uh, you know, we're in February now, and a lot of people um, got gym memberships the first week of January, but the first week of February may not be going as much. Uh, we may not be eating the same foods we set out to eat the first week of January. We may not be putting aside as much money every paycheck that we started out doing the first week of January. So, you know, here we are in February, and I want to reiterate that. I want to rehash that again. What, what did we say we were going to do January 1st? This is what's going to be different about 2012, and let's go there. Uh, because the problem, the reason why most people don't fulfill the resolutions or the changes they want to make is because they just don't uh, make it a priority. And to make something a priority, you have to give attention to it. The way you make God's word priority is giving attention to it, choosing to read it, choosing to live it, choosing to apply it, choosing to be in church and hear the word, choosing to uh, just make time to be in the word. That's how you make priority. If you make a priority for your spouse, then you choose to spend time with them, choose to do things for them, choose to tell them you love them. Uh, same thing with your family and for your job. You make priority by giving attention to something. And so we want to keep giving attention to 180. We want to keep giving attention to what is that that's necessary in our lives to change. Um, last week I started by just giving an intro. There's four specific areas um, that God has laid on my heart to address um, that, you know, if you 
do a family feud questionnaire with people and you say, what are some resolutions that people make every year? These are some basic ones. Uh, the first area is finances. Most people at the turn of the year, they want to do something different. They want to save more money. They want to get out of debt. They want to make more money, whatever. Uh, the next area is their relationship with God. For a lot of believers, that's one thing that's on the top of their list is, you know, I want to have a deeper relationship with God. I want to be in the word more. I want to uh, hear him talk to me and I want to talk to him. Um, another one is our families. And, you know, I want to uh, be a better parent. I want to be a better spouse, uh, husband, wife. Um, I want our family to be closer. I want us to do things together as a family that we normally don't do. And then the last area is our bodies and uh, things that are in our bodies that uh, we want to change. We want to change physically. We want to change emotionally. We want to change mentally. And so these are the four areas that God has laid on my heart uh, that we're to address. I started last week with an introduction, and I said the first thing to understand to change any of these areas, whether it be your body, whether it be your relationships, whether it be your family or your finances, the first thing you have to understand is you own nothing. That's the first key. God has placed us on this earth as stewards, as managers, and as governors of something. But he owns everything. The Bible says in Psalms that God, the creator of the universe, he owns the earth. It says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But then it says in another verse in Psalms that he has given the earth to man. And we know this when we laid our uh, kingdom foundation that God being a king in heaven created the earth and placed man on the earth to rule over what he created. God created the trees, he created the stars, he created the land, the animals, he created us. But he created us with a purpose because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says that he said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, to look and act and think like us. Now, that doesn't mean that I resemble God physically, that I have his body type and his features. Uh, but that image and that likeness, that means that I have God's characteristics. I have God's uh, mentality. I have his thought process. And why was this necessary? Because God was extending his kingdom from heaven in a place that we cannot see to the earth in a place that we can see. But when he created the earth, he wanted earth to mirror and to replicate and to look like heaven, period. That, the Garden of Eden was heaven on earth. And so he, he but he said this, he said, I, but I'm not going to rule over the earth. I'm, I'm not in control of the earth. I have placed man in the earth with that dominion. So now Adam's the one naming the animals. Adam is the one uh, cultivating the garden and, and making sure that things grow back the way they're supposed to grow back. Adam is the one that has the authority and the control. But we know what Adam did. We know what Eve did. They ate of the fruit. They disobeyed the one command that God gave them, do not eat of the fruit. And he failed to remain in obedience to the king. And when you fail to remain in obedience to authority, you lose your authority. So now Adam and Eve handed over authority to the devil. And we know that Satan is the god of this world. Everything that we see around us, everything that this world shows us is death, decay, destruction. And everything now has a downward cycle and a, and a downward trend to falling apart. But that is not the way God intended it for, to be. That's not the way God created this earth to be. 
He created this earth to be perfect. He created this earth to look like heaven. And so Adam and Eve, they were not wandering around the garden looking for one day Jesus is going to come back and take us all to heaven. You will not find that. I know it's very short. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and, and Genesis 3 is where the fall happens. So we don't have a whole lot in there. But we do know this, that Adam and Eve were only concerned with one thing, taking care of the earth. They were only concerned with that. They weren't worried about what they were going to eat. They weren't worried about where they're going to live. They weren't even worried about what they're going to wear because they were naked. They didn't have to worry about clothes. But now, today, this is all that consumes us. Where am I going to work? How am I going to put food on the table? Uh, you know, what am I going to drive? What am I going to live in? What am I going to wear? Do I have enough clothes? I need more clothes. Uh, this, this is all that consumes our mentality. And this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Jesus came to this earth with one purpose in mind. And it's different from what we've heard our entire lives. I understand that. But Jesus came to this earth to take the sin out of man. That's why he died on the cross. And to bring the kingdom back to heaven. Or bring the kingdom of heaven back to the earth. To restore what was lost. See, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they didn't lose access to heaven. It wasn't like, oh man, we can't go to heaven now. That was never their intention. That was never their priority. That was never their mindset. So Jesus came back. Will we one day go to heaven? Yes. The Bible is very clear that if you are separate from your flesh and separate from the earth, that you are present with the Lord. If you're absent from the flesh and absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. Where's the Lord? In heaven. So we know that one day we will go to heaven, but that was not Jesus' purpose. Jesus' purpose in dying on the cross and rising again and going back to heaven was to give you the ability to rule and reign and operate on the earth like Adam and Eve did. Now, what were Adam and Eve? They were stewards. They were managers. We know that word uh, dominion in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let man have dominion. That word dominion is actually the word manage. To manage, to control, to have authority. See, God is the owner, but we are in control. How many of you have ever heard someone say in your lifetime at some point, God is in control? We've, we've probably all heard that, right? God is in control. He's not. He's in control of one thing, his word. But in Genesis 1.26, in verse 28, he spoke something into, into this world that changed all that. And he gave control to man. So that's what this is all about. The first thing you have to understand is I own nothing. See, a lot of people have a hard time uh, changing their finances because they think they own it. Well, I worked for this money. This is mine. I, I, you know, I, I worked hard. I put in my 40 hours. I put in my 60 hours. You know, some people put in upwards to 80 hours a week to their work. Well, I worked hard. That's mine. A lot of people have trouble changing their bodies or having anybody show them. See, everything I'm going to show you in the next four weeks in this 180 series is going to come from the Word. I'm, I'm not going to become a motivational speaker. I'm not going to be your life coach. And here's ten quick steps to getting rich. And here's uh, seven easy ways to lose weight. That's not what we're doing. We're going to go through the Word and we're going to see what does the Word say about my finances? What does the Word say about my body and how I should take care of it? What does the Word say about my family and how I should be the head of my home and, and how I should operate as a wife or a husband or a parent? What does the Word say about 
my relationship with God and how he sees me and how I should view myself in relationship to him. That's what we're going to look at because that's all that is necessary. There's people that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on seminars and conferences and, and curriculum and DVDs and books to show them how to you know, get out of debt and leadership skills and how to parent properly. And I'm just going to give you, it's free too. It's the Bible. The Bible. And we're going to be directed by the Word of God. Okay? But the first problem that most people have is I can't touch that stuff. In Bible school, they taught me that the three hardest areas for you to preach on as a pastor are people's finances, how to parent their children, and their marriages. Don't, they don't want, most people don't talk to me about my marriage, don't talk to me about my finances, and don't talk to me about how to raise my kids. Those are the three toughest areas. But the Bible has a lot to say about all three of those areas and much more. So I want to know what the Bible says, and, and I want to be teachable. I don't want to go through life thinking I know it all, and I've heard it all, and there's nothing else I could ever learn. I don't want to do that. So I pray that you all will be uh, teachable, that you'll hear what we're saying. Um, if, if that's part of a, of a mindset for you is, uh, you know, this is my body. And there's some people that work hard to keep their body in shape. I'm not just talking about the other end. I'm talking about both ends. There are some people that uh, it's become a god. To, to work out or to be in shape or to eat right, and they're, they're looking at the numbers, and, and that, that it, it controls them. Anything that dictates your time and dictates what you do with your life is a god. And so people have all kinds of gods. They, they, uh, soda, I, I got to have a soda. Got, got to have, and I, I love Dr. Pepper. That's probably my weakest thing is Dr. Pepper. It's so hard for me to go to a restaurant and ask for water unless they have Mr. Pibb. Then it's like, okay, well, water. Because Mr. Pibb is not the same thing, Okay. It is not even close. But there's things that in our lives that are always trying to come up to, what, control us. Because the second you give yourself to another God, then the king is no longer your God. And the only way we can operate in this earth effectively is if God is controlling, if God is dictating our life. Now, when I say control, I don't mean he's forcing you, because God doesn't force anybody. We know that. Uh, if he wanted to force somebody, he would have forced Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree. He would have started from the beginning and forced them there. So we know that God's not into forcing anybody. This is all about will. And I said this on Wednesday. I said the power to choose is the power to change. The greatest thing you have at your disposal is the power of choice and to be able to make a choice. That is the greatest thing. So let this be a day that you start and you make a choice that I'm going to hear from the Word of God in these specific areas. And I promise you, I, I believe all of us, including myself, I'm not excluded just because I'm up here saying it. We could all find some area to tweak. No matter how much money we make, no matter how, much, how good a shape we're in, no matter how uh, great of a relationship we have with our King, our Father, no matter how well we run our family, I don't care if your children are the most well-behaved kids and they, they never do anything wrong, uh, I believe we can all find areas to make adjustments. Amen? So let's get into this. 2 Kings chapter 4. Today, I just decided to go ahead and start off with a hard one, and maybe we can work our way from there. Uh, we're going to talk about money today. We're going to talk about our finances. Okay? So 2 Kings chapter 4, and we want to find out what the Word has to say about our finances. We're going to start with verse 1. 
It says, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. So real quick here, let's just go ahead and point this out. She is a wife of the son of a prophet. So she's a godly woman, okay? I'll set you up. Uh, This area right now is in a famine. A famine was when there was no water, there was drought. Uh, All you farmers probably know where we're going with this. Uh, There's no, crops aren't growing, uh, so food is lacking and it's getting bad. And a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take my sons to be his slaves. So right here in the first verse, she's already going ahead and letting Elisha know. Elisha's a prophet, a man of God. She's letting him know, my, this family has served God. This family worked for the Lord. So what is she doing? She's already putting herself in a position to make a demand. She's already putting herself in a position that God can take care of my situation. The first thing she's identifying. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Now notice his next statement. Tell me, what do you have in your house? Now obviously she's coming to the prophet because she has nothing. <laughs> she's looking for a miracle, right? It's amazing how many people come and, and talk to me about different situations and things and they're looking for a miracle. But the second I turn the responsibility back on them, they, they think the miracle is just God showing up and doing something without them having to do anything. But notice right here, I mean, it's almost like, how dare the prophet ask this woman, what do you have in your house? I mean, that's an insult. It's famine. They're about to take her children to be slaves. And we don't understand that today because we don't have that in the United States. But imagine your husband dying and you have children. And if you can't pay the creditors the debt that he left behind... They're going to take your kids and their kids are going to go work for them. I mean, we don't understand that today, but this is a dire situation. And so Elisha says, tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. He just needs something to start with. Verse 3. Then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. And the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. So did God ultimately do a miracle? He sure did. But here's what I want to point. Here's what I want to point out. God is always meeting a need with you bringing what you have. With you bringing what you have. There is a halfway point. See, God set something from the very beginning of time. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and you see that God created the trees, God created the water, God created the 
fish that goes in the water. He created the stars. He created animals. But he does something every single time. He says, and let the tree reproduce after its own kind. Let the fish reproduce after its own kind. Let the beasts of the field reproduce after its own kind. What's he doing? He's saying that everything that he created has the ability to reproduce itself. But what does it require? A seed. A seed. And it will reproduce itself after its own kind. See, it's amazing how many people want something from God, but they never put anything in. They never plant the seed. And you may have heard of finances as a seed before. You're giving your seed. You're putting it in the ground. Why? Because money works the same way. Everything works the same way. I mean, if you want to get joy in your life, then don't hang out with depressed people. If you want to get peace in your life, then don't hang out with people that are worried and anxious all the time and thinking the world's going to end tomorrow. And they're worried about this. They're worried about this. If you want to uh, have a happy life, then don't hang around angry people. If you want to be a positive person, then don't hang around negative people. Why? Because they are planting seeds within you. And guess what? It will reproduce after its own kind. It's amazing. The, the, the things that I see... It, the company you keep and the people that influence you uh, have so much to do with our lives. And a lot of times the last thing we look at. I'll tell you what, one of the things that I identify in my life real quick is the company I keep and the people I hang around with uh, because that, that's too valuable. And I'm not saying I can't hang out with bad people. I, I'm not saying that at all. But you have to be careful because if you just keep giving yourself to that, they are planting a seed within you. They are putting a seed within you. I mean, there, there's people, you know, that they're always depressed. I wish I just, you know, wasn't always depressed. I just feel so lonely all the time. Yet the people they talk to the most are in the same predicament they are in. Change the environment. Get, get away from the people because I can promise you, uh, you know, I heard one... Um, I heard one rich person that, you know, that had wealth. He said he always tries to get around people that have more than he has. You ever know that, some, you know, poor people sometimes, they just hang out with poor people. Um, one thing that I try to do is I, I, I try to make sure that I'm, I'm not always the smartest one in the room. And I'm not always the one talking. Why? Because if I'm the smartest one in the room, then people are only drawing from me and I'm not getting anything back. I want to be around people that know stuff, and I just want to hear them talk, and I want to gain knowledge and, and gain wisdom. But i got to change my environment. Otherwise, people are just going to suck me dry, and I'm just giving, 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 and I find out I've, I haven't learned anything. I want to learn some stuff. I want to hang out with people that, are, that have money and, 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 and are wealthier than I am because maybe I'll learn some stuff. Maybe I'll hear something, that, a practice that they do. And so no matter what level we get to in life, we should never get to a point uh, where everyone's just drawing from us and we're never pulling from anyone else. Because I want seeds planted in me just as much as I want to plant seeds in other people. I'm all about investment. And you talk to any investor, and, and when I say investment, I'm, t I'm not talking about money. I've invested money before, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritual investment. I want to be invested in 
And I want to invest in people because if you talk to any investor, what do they always expect? A return. I want a return. You know, last week we, we you know, opened up and talking about stewardship and talking about, you know, we own nothing. And I showed you all the, the parable of the talents that Jesus gave. And he gave three men. There was a, there was a Lord that owned property. And he gave three men uh, different responsibilities. Called them talents, the parable of the talents. To one he gave five, to another he gave two, and another he gave one. What did the five do? Double it and got a return. What did the guy with two do? Doubled it and got a return. Notice that it wasn't about the quantity. He wasn't expecting the guy with two to go out and get ten like the guy with five. He was just expecting a return. But what did the guy with one do? Dug a hole, buried it in the ground, and there was no return. And when the Lord came back, when the owner of this field, and this owner of this kingdom came back, he said, well, you should have at least, at least, stuck it in the bank and let it earn some interest so I can get some kind of return. God is looking for a return off of what is in our possession. And the biggest problem we have, and what I love about what the Bible talks about finances is it it doesn't matter if you're poor and it doesn't matter if you're rich. The Bible covers the whole thing. In fact, if you look right after this passage we just read, This woman obviously had nothing, and she was on the verge of losing even what she did have. And what did the man of God ask? What do you have in your house? God always meets a need with, what do you have? But if you look right after that, you'll find that Elisha goes to another town and goes to a woman who had everything. She was wealthy. She was of a prominent family. She was in a prominent town. But what happened to her? Her son died. They don't matter how much. It's not about finances, and it's not about wealth. There's always something that will meet you where you're at. And so the Bible covers the whole thing. And the Bible says that having money and not having money are both dangerous. See, we've misunderstood the word wealth, and we've misunderstood the word prosperity. And we've made it to seem like you've got to keep getting more, 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 when that really only is speaking to contentment, satisfaction. What is, need, what is needed to satisfy you? For some people, it may be $60,000 a year. And for some people, it may be $150,000 a year. But that, that's not what God is addressing. God wants to know, am, are you using what I'm putting in your hands? Are you using that for my kingdom? The second... And this is, this is the reason why it's so dangerous with money. And a lot of churches have a negative... I, I just watched a uh, video just a few weeks ago where there was a pastor um, that was... Uh, he's got a church, I believe, in Alabama. And um, he wanted to give more to missions. And he wanted to give more to India. and wanted to give more to, to missionaries that they're helping in other countries. Um, and so he got with his leadership and he started cutting back in all these areas within his church. He cut on his worship staff and he cut in his children's. Um, in fact, uh, I, I think he quit buying Cheez-Its for the kids. And um, it, was, it was a debate video that I was watching. And uh, the other pastors, they were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're not even giving your kids Cheez-Its? 
because you want to feed some poor kids in India. And this is where they were coming from. We should be so blessed in the church that we should be able to take care of business at home and be able to give to missions out of our abundance. But this guy had, a, had this mentality, this pastor, and I don't agree with it at all, that we have to lack and we have to sacrifice and we have to give up. Yes, there are, there are times that God will ask you to give up because I don't care if you have $100,000 sitting in the bank. If God says, give that to so-and-so, you better be able to give it to so-and-so. If you have trouble giving it up, then guess what? You don't have the money anymore. The money's got you. And the money dictates your life. But see, there are some people on the lack side. Well, God, you know, God just wants me trusting in Him. God wants me to... God is not going to just cause dollar bills and coins to just fall out of the sky and rain all over people. It's not going to happen. You know, and, and we've misinterpreted this stuff that, you know, well, if I got any... No, He says, one, to work. He said, if a man don't work, that a man don't eat. So we are to work. But the, the key is, is to always remember that God is the provider, not your job. God is the provider. Does God want us to be blessed? Yes. Does God want us to have everything we need? Yes. Is there a problem with having nice things? No. Absolutely not. It's when the things have you. And the question that you always have to ask yourself is, remember, you don't own it. He's the Lord. Which means the Lord dictates what you do with it. I've used this example before. If I take my truck and say I let Derek take it out and say, Derek, you're in control of my truck. I own the truck. Derek is in control of the truck. So now, I'm not... I don't call the shots on who goes in and out of the truck. I'm not calling the shots on where he's going with the truck. I'm not calling the shots on when he changes the oil. He's in control of it. He's taking care of it. I own it. Now, if I give it to him for a specific purpose, take my truck and help this person move into this house, then I hope he wouldn't take my truck and run off to Atlanta and just go party it up and say, I got a free ride to Atlanta. Right? No, he's using the vehicle to help so-and-so move their house. I've given it to him for a specific purpose. But he's in control over it, and he's managing it. But now, if I say to Derek, okay, Derek, now I need you to give it to Chuck. If Derek, <laughs> yeah, now he's having a hard time giving it up. He's proving me out now. I'm the Lord. I own the truck. So I get to tell him what you do with it. And now when it's time to, if he's got a hard time giving it up, guess what? He no longer, he thinks he owns the truck. That's why you only have trouble giving up things that you think belong to you or are yours. Okay? If it ain't yours, you have no problem. I don't, I don't go into Target and, and, you know, pick up an iPad off the shelf and say, huh, this is mine. And then when they say, okay, you've got to put that back, I don't have a hard time well, no, I, I touched it. I picked it up. It's, I've been walking around with it, right? No, I didn't buy it. It's not in my possession. It's still in Target's possession. So when they say, sir, we need you to put that back on the shelf, guess what? I put it back on the shelf, okay? It, it's very simple. The only people that have a hard time with finances and have a hard time with things are the ones that think that they own it. Now, this is hard. 
because I worked hard for that. I've worked hard to get to this point in my job to make this much money to be able to buy this kind of vehicle. But who gave you the job? Who are you really working for? Because the last time I checked, our job is an assignment from the king to influence people at that workplace for the kingdom of God. See, now we're changing our thinking around. This is why I opened up last week with stewardship. That's why the first thing I had to get out to go anywhere with this series is for you to understand you own nothing. But now I want to talk about God meeting your needs. I want to talk about you being able to have finances. You know, I, I run into a lot of people that you know are big on saving. Um, there's only one time that I've found in the Bible where someone saved money. Uh, and I'm not against saving money at all. I save money. I have a savings account and I put money in there. But again, you've got to be careful because you can become attached to it and then we only think of that savings for a purpose. The only time God had someone save for something was when Joseph told Pharaoh's dream, the famine was coming, and he said there's going to have seven good years and then you're going to have seven bad years. During the seven good years, you need to put aside and you need to save and you need to make sure that you've got plenty for the seven bad years. The rest of the time, people in the Bible are just being a funnel. Just being a funnel. And I have no problem with my bank account going down to zero every week if I'm being a funnel for the kingdom. Now, there are times that he'll have us save. There are times that as a church, he'll have us save and he'll say, we need you to put us... I remember there was... um. Uh, pastor back in the, I want to say the 70s, um, and God specifically told him, um, you need to uh, cut employment by this amount, you need, you need to go ahead and let, me, let go of this many people, and you need to start saving uh, this amount. And within, I want to say, two to three years of him taking those actions, a recession hit the country, and he needed it. So we have to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will guide us. The Holy Spirit will lead us. The Holy Spirit will tell us about it. Now, what about the poor people? The, see, the problem is, I was just talking to a pastor this past weekend that, that's uh, here in this town. He has a ministry. And uh, uh, they're kind of, you know, going through some hard times. And he said, you know, I'm just having a hard time, you know, letting some people go. You know, I gave him this, this one girl, you know, she, she quit her job to, to come work with us. And, and I said, I said, ma'am, you're not her provider. If you think you're her provision, then you're limiting her to what you can give her. See, ain't no one in this world can pay you what you're worth. I don't care how much they pay you. They can't pay you what you're worth. Because you're a child of God. So the first thing we have to get over, the first thing we have to realize is, my job is not my provision. I remember when, um, it was back in 2000. 2007, 2008, I was working at a bank down in St. Augustine, Florida. I was working outside the church. I was on staff at the church, but we weren't on full-time just yet. And I was working at a bank. And um, this was during the rough time of the economy. And I'm talking, especially for banks, every day, every day, there was a concern, a worry, and an anxiousness that someone was going to come through the doors with boxes saying, we're having to shut you guys down. I mean, we were hearing about it. And they were shutting down branches. And we had two branches in St. Augustine. 
And that was very rare for even a city of that size to have two branches of this one bank. Very rare. And we were the slower one. There were two separate branches. One of them was in town where they had high traffic but didn't keep a lot of money on hand. And I worked on the beach where all the retired people were. And so they would put their money into investments. And, you know, we've got, you know, tons of money in investments, but you only see them maybe once or twice a year when it rolls over or when they want to come get their return or whatever. So it was kind of a tricky thing. And so we thought, okay, well, for sure, you know, if they're going to shut one of us down, they're going to shut down the lower traffic one. And so every day. But I literally upset my coworkers, made them angry. Because they'd ask me, aren't you worried? I mean, what are you, you going to do? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're taking their time on the job and they're filling out resumes and looking online for new jobs and, and, and I'm not doing any of that. And they'd get concerned and they'd, they'd get worried and then they'd, they'd ask me, well, I mean, how come you're not looking for a job? What are you going to do? If they shut this branch down today, what are you going to do? I'm going to say, first of all, it would be no surprise to God if they came in and shut this place down and said, sorry. So, if it don't surprise God, then it won't surprise me. Two, and this is the one that really got them, this job doesn't give me my paycheck. What do you mean this job doesn't give you your paycheck? God is my provider. If, this jo- if I were to lose this job today and not get another check, guess what? I've got someone who's going to make sure I get paid there's going to be someone that's going to take care of my rent, take care of my water bill, take care of my electric bill. Now, am I just going to sit around on the couch and just say, God's got me covered? Nope. Because if a man don't work, a man... But you know what? I was faithful in that job, not only to do the job, but to be a kingdom influence to those people. I saw people born again in that job. There's people that are in our church now that I worked with that finally came and visited after I nagged them enough and after I bugged them enough and, and said, hey, you need to come to church. Hey, you should come to church with me tonight. Hey, you should come to church with me this weekend. I, I, I led people to the Lord. I was a kingdom. I was an influence for God's kingdom in that job. It wasn't just about the, the co-workers. Uh, my bosses saw that. My wife and I went through a, a very terrible situation back in 2008. And came back, I took a week off because of this situation, took a week off of work, came back, and, you know, they're all concerned, they're worried. Do you need to take another week? No. I've got peace. I'm not worried. I'm, I'm not anxious. I'm not depressed. I mean, one of them even told me, you know, we, we, have, we do have counselors within the company that can help you deal with this and help, help you work through this. We, we lost a child back in 2008 in pregnancy. And you come back, and it's, and they're all sad for you, and they're all moaning for your loss, and, you know, sending me flowers. I'm like, that was so last week. You know, and not that it was an easy situation, but I've got something beyond what you're relying on. They had the world limiting them to the world's resources and the world's answers. And I was able to come back, and they saw my light. They saw my peace. They saw that. I was right back on the job doing what I did before I left. It was awesome. It was awesome to be that example, to be that light. And it was a testimony to God. See, that's the thing is when you go through the, when you can have peace in a worrisome situation, he gets the glory. 
When you can walk in love, when someone takes you off to the fullest, he gets the glory. When you're able to, to show joy in a, in a depressing situation, see, God isn't around promising that you know, hard times aren't going to come. He's not around saying, you know, this world, you, you're just going to live in a happy bubble and none of, nothing of the world's going to ever affect you. We know that ain't true. But what's he asking you to do? When you've done all to stand, stand. Walk in the fruit of the Spirit. Show my character. Show my kingdom. And he gets the glory. Man, you, you, you know, you, and they would tell me. And they didn't even know what they were saying. But they'd tell me. And, you know, God, God's really got your back. God's really got you covered. You're absolutely right. More than you know. And so that's why I was there. And so I knew if they come in and shut this place down, put locks on the doors and chains and say, good luck, see you later, I know. And the only thing that Jesus has asked me to be concerned with is 24 hours. Well, I've got to bill this due on Thursday. When Thursday comes, we'll figure out what's going to happen. But he's asked us to take care of today. He said tomorrow has enough worries of its own. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says uh, to pray that you would receive your daily bread today. I'm not even concerned with tomorrow. I don't care who's coming tomorrow. Because before tomorrow is up, if I put my full faith and trust in God, then he will take care of it. Before, I, before that clock strikes 12 midnight tomorrow night, it will be taken care of. And we think, oh, God, you're right on time. Oh, God, you were late. And he's saying, no. I mean, if, if he meets the need at 11.59 or if he meets it today, what's the difference? He met the need before the deadline. We're the ones that put the deadline on it. We're the ones rushing things. We're the, one getting, we're the ones getting anxious. And he's saying, I'm just, I want to provide for you. I want to take care of you. But you have to seek my kingdom. A lot of people have financial issues because they don't seek the kingdom with their finances. And the Bible gives direction. The Bible gives commands on what to do. Look at this over in uh, Exodus. Uh, Exodus chapter 25. I want to let you know, um, Elisha, he was the second prophet. Before him was Elijah. It was Elijah. Then Elijah went to heaven, and Elisha took over. Elijah, they, they, and it, it, it's actually recorded in the Bible that Elisha did twice as many works that Elijah did. And Elisha and Elijah did the same thing. Did the same miracles that... One parted a river, and Elisha parted the river. Elijah, uh, you know, met a widow woman's need, and Elisha met a uh, Elijah raised a boy from from death, and Elisha. Okay, we just read about Elisha and his instance with the widow woman, but over in First uh, Kings, I think it's First Kings seventeen, you have Elijah's story, and Elijah. It's famine again. It's another time of famine. And Elijah, God tells him to go into this town. And when he goes into the town, he sees this woman and, their, and her son picking up sticks. And he asked them, what are you doing? And, he, and she said, we are, I'm getting ready to make one last cake for me and my son, and we're going to die. 
That's what she says. Not much of an outlook on life. You thought yours was bad. You thought you were in the, you had it. I mean, she, she knows this is the last thing we're going to eat and then we're going to die. That's her words. But guess what Elijah does? He says, what do you have? He says, make me a cake. The last cake. There's no leftover, you know, if, in case somebody else happens to come by our house. We'll feed them too. This is it. This is the last cake. And she, she said, but this is the last one. But what did she do? She was obedient to it. How dare the man of God? What kind of God is he that would take the woman's last cake? But guess what? Her jar, her jar of oil never ran out until the famine was over. And the famine was about three years. Never ran out. But look at this in Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me a what? An offering. Now, who are the children of Israel? These are the Israelites. They just came out of 430 years of slavery. 430 years of having nothing, everything taken away from them, and being slaves and working for someone else. Now they've got some stuff, they've been freed out of Egypt, and they're in the middle of the wilderness. And look at what God is asking for them to do. Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it, what? Willingly, with his heart. You shall take my offering. How dare God ask a bunch of people that have been in, let them enjoy the stuff they got. They came out with a bunch of spoils from the Egyptians. And the first thing God says when they get in this wilderness is, now give it to me. For the building of my tabernacle. For the building of my place. What would have been back then? The church. How dare God who lives in heaven, he's a spirit. He don't need a house. He don't need gold. He don't Look at the things he's asking for. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 3. And this is the offering which you shall take. Gold, silver, and bronze. I don't know about you, but that's some good stuff. That's the best stuff. I mean, this stuff is just as valuable then as it is today. And he's asking for the gold. He's not asking for the leftovers. I'm weary of doing churches that do yard sales. We, we'll do yard sales. But I don't want to put into a, in a mentality in, in people's minds that God just gets our leftovers. Well, let's just get all of our junk that we never use and let's sell it. And then that's what we use to build a church. God wants the first stuff. God wants the beginning. And God wants the good stuff, the gold, the silver, and the bronze. That's what he's asking from a people that have just spent 430 of the last years in slavery, just came out of Egypt. He pulled them out of Egypt into a promised land, and now this is what he's asking for. And you go on, he's got blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat hair. I mean, he's going on with what he's asking for, onyx stones. Verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. 
Let me build, let them build with this that I'm asking. Let them make me some place, a house that I can come and abide with them in. That's what he's asking. I'm going to tell you right now that God is looking to meet our needs with what we have. And there is no one in this room that can say, but I have nothing. We're going to see here in Malachi chapter 3 that if you get a paycheck, he's already carved out a portion of it. Now this is in the Bible. A lot of pastors have a hard time preaching about money. This is the first time I've ever talked about money. Let me just go ahead and state it for the record. Because I preach about it once, and I'm going to be labeled a prosperity preacher for the rest of my life. Oh, he's just one of those preachers that just wants money. This is the first time I've been here since October 16th. I don't know how many services that is, but that's quite a few. This is the first time I've ever talked about money. But I'm going to show you what God says about your money. In Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. Now, everyone's thinking the next phrase. How? How, how do we rob God? How can you steal from God? That's what robbing is. We all agree robbery is stealing. And what is stealing? Stealing is taking something that doesn't belong to you. Taking something that is not yours. That is what stealing is. Do we all agree on that definition? But you say, in what way have we robbed you? His response, in tithes. And offerings. Well, I mean, when, when they pass the bucket, I don't take anything out of there. I'm not stealing the tithe. How am I stealing the tithe? Verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, look at this, even the whole nation. Let me tell you something about God. We are in a kingdom, and I understand that when I talk about kingdom, and when I say the word kingdom, and when I talk about kingdoms, it's not very clearly understood because we live in a free nation, in a democracy, and in a republic where everyone has their own opinion, everyone has their own right, everyone has a say-so, and what I do doesn't affect you, but if we can get enough people agreeing on the same thing that I agree about, then we can change something. Okay? Now, this nation, uh, I, I would rather live here than anywhere else in the world. I've said that many times. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it saves us because it keeps one man from holding all the power. And we know what, what, what happens. Well, could you imagine if the President of the United States had all the power? It's so funny. We put so much blame and so much responsibility. He's not even the one calling the shots. He's got Senate and he's got Congress and he's got all these people around him. And when it all comes down to it, Guess what? We have a say-so. We have a voice. That's what a vote is for. But in a kingdom, there are no rights. In a kingdom, there is no voting. You don't vote a king into position. He is king by right. And so when I'm talking about a kingdom, you have to understand that as a believer, you are in a kingdom. 
This is not a democracy. This isn't, well, I choose to do that or I don't choose to do that. In a kingdom, there's one man that has the authority, and you do what he says, period. And so now he's looking at this, and he says, the whole nation. The way that God views this is if one person isn't doing it, then the whole nation's not doing it. You go back to a story with uh, Joshua, uh, back in uh, the book of Joshua. And they just got done t- taking down Jericho. We know about Jericho as a city that had a wall built around it. And so what did God tell them to do? To circle around the, built, circle around the wall, circle around the city, and then on the seventh day, shout, and the walls come down. What a great victory. How awesome that was. A great city. A very fortified city. The very next battle, there's a small little town called Ai. Had a small name. And it was a small town. Two letters. A-I. And so Jericho said, or, uh, Joshua says, we got this. Uh, just send down these guys. We, we, we don't need to send everybody in. And they got slaughtered. Well, here's what happened. God commanded them when they went into Jericho, he said, take nothing. Sometimes they were allowed to take spoils. They were allowed to take things. They were allowed to take possessions. But he says specifically, take Nothing. Do not touch anything. Well, there was a man in the nation named Achan. One man named Achan. Got a little greedy, saw some stuff. He grabbed it and hid it in his tent. It's so funny when you steal something and you can't even use it because... (laughs) You know, I found that out real young as a kid. You take something of someone else's, but... I can't use it because then everyone's going to see me using it and they're going to know it doesn't belong to me. And I'm hiding stuff from my mom and hiding stuff from my dad. And I, Great, I just, I just stole this Walkman. That was a big thing when I was a kid, a Walkman, a cassette player with the, with the you know, puffy headphones, you know, the wire headphones that were adjustable. What am I going to do with it? I can't listen to it. I have to sit in my room all by myself and I'm you know, listening, listening out, see if anyone's coming. Can't even enjoy the thing, you know? What, what's the point? So he's sitting on all this treasure in his tent. So they go out and they fight this tiny little town called Ai and get slaughtered. Should have had it. And Joshua gets down before his face and he says, uh, he says, God, you, you look like an idiot. That's pretty much what he says. He puts the responsibility on God. He says, God, if I fail because I, com- because I call you king, you fail. You look horrible. And so he says, what is it? What is it? He says, someone in your camp has sinned. Someone in your camp has taken something. Now, a lot of pastors use this as a fear tactic. I'm not using it as a fear tactic, but I'm showing you how God views this thing. He had the man brought out, his wife, his kids, his entire family, not just immediate family, the entire family, his animals, and every single one of them were stoned to death because of this one man. The entire nation just lost a a teensy-weensy little battle that they should have had, and now this man loses his entire family. That's how God was viewing this thing. If one has sinned, the whole nation. So that's what he's saying here. You are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even the whole 
nation has robbed me. The whole nation is holding back the tithe. When we know that the whole nation wasn't holding back the tithe, because you can see throughout the Bible where they were given the tithe and given the offering. We just saw in Exodus where he was asking for the offering. And in fact, if you go down a few more chapters in Exodus, you'll find Moses telling the people, stop bringing stuff. We've got too much. I can't, I can't take it all. Man, I would love to have that day when I can look at you and say, we, don't, we do not need to take up a tithe and offering today. We have too much. I don't even know what to do with it. And it'll happen. We'll, we'll be given to something. We'll give to a building fund or we'll give to a ministry. And I'll say, we've got it met. I'll let you know right now, we do not need another dime towards that. It'll happen. Because they gave willingly out of their heart. But now he's talking to a nation that isn't. And he actually says that you have robbed me. Verse 10. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse. That there be food in whose house? His house. Seek first the kingdom of God. He's saying, bring all the tithe so there may be food in my house. That this house will be taken care of. Where I dwell, where I want to assemble, where I want to abide. Take care of me, and then what? He will take care of you. Okay. Let's keep going. And try me now. Everyone say, try me. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. How many of you have room to receive blessing right now? Okay. And look what he says in verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. What's he saying? He's saying, I will make sure that the stuff that you do have is taken care of. Your refrigerator will last longer. Your vehicle will last longer. Your washer and dryer will last longer. Well, that sounds ridiculous. He, he doesn't have any Sure he does. I know, there's, I know people that were, didn't have money to get gas and ran on an empty tank way longer than they should have. Why? Because they were doing God's purpose. God is all about taking care of his people. I'm not here to preach a God that wants you in lack and wants you desolate and wants you... Uh, needing things so you can trust and want more of Him. I can trust Him with a new vehicle. I can trust God with a nice house. I can trust God when my heat or my AC is working. I can trust God when I have a microwave to put my food in to warm it up. I don't have to live lowly and desolate to trust God. In fact, He will always find some area for you to trust God. We just saw a, a woman that's wealthy and still needed to trust God because her son dies. You always have an area to trust God. You don't have to lose everything and give everything up. He just wants you to be able to be obedient. I know someone down in St. Augustine right now, someone down in St. Augustine right now that gave up their vehicle, a vehicle that they had had since they turned 16, 
It was a present from their parents. It was the car he's always wanted and gave it away. And he's he's driving an H2 Hummer that doesn't even belong to him and is in his possession right now. Ridiculous stuff. And the only reason is because he was obedient to God and said, I'm supposed to give this car away. Went to his parents and said, I've got to do it. And thank God he had God-fearing parents that knew that he had to obey God no matter what. Gave it up. And that's a pretty nice vehicle to be driving around. You didn't drop a dime for it. It's in your possession. You go anywhere you want to go and do anything you need to do. I'm not saying God's going to bless us all with hummers if we go give our cars away. But again, he's reproducing seed after its own kind. You want money, you've got to plant a seed. You've got to put the finance in the ground. But God is saying here that you have robbed me in the tithe and the offering. That means that if we're holding back, and I know this can get hard, if we're holding back the tithe and the offering, we are robbing God. That means when you get your paycheck, 10% of that check, He's already marked it off as his. That's my portion. He's already carved it out. And if we keep that, then we are stealing because we're keeping something that belongs to somebody else. That's why it's called stealing. That's why it's called robbery. This is not an optional thing. This is a command. And he said, you are cursed with the curse, even the whole nation, because you have held back the tithe. And the offering. What is the tithe? Tithe literally means 10%. So we, and that's easy. I, I read an article just the other day where someone was trying to say that, uh, the, that God doesn't require a tithe. And he was showing how, you know, if someone makes, you know, uh, $2,000 in a week, then, you know, $200 of that is tithe. Well, that's good because they have $1,800. But if someone, you know, makes $100, $10 is a lot. Right? But sorry, that's not what the Bible says. That's why he didn't put a dollar amount on it. He put a percentage. He said, this is the percentage I want of it. Well, the problem I have with that is, okay, so you made $100. You're left with 90 But, you know, $10, that, I mean, another $10, when that's all you make, that could be a lot. Okay, sure. But then what are we putting our trust in? What are we putting our trust in then? Have we built up our life to where we have trouble letting go of the 10 because we have so much to pay for? I mean, I've been there. I added so much junk to my life and and so many extra things that I didn't need that it literally became hard just to give the tithe, just to give the 10%. Because the 10% was a credit card bill or the 10% was a car payment or the 10% was paying off this thing. I've been there. But he's asking for a percentage and he's just looking for trust in him. And if you have trouble giving up that 10%, then your trust is in the money 
And guess what happens? If you put your trust in a worldly thing, then you are limited to the resource of that worldly thing. If the woman that Elijah approached had limited herself to the cake, the one last cake that her and her son were going to eat, and didn't give it up, I mean, what did she do in giving it up? She literally had no food for herself. And in giving it up, she showed that I'm trusting in God to do something in return. But if she says, no, I'm going to keep the cake, then guess what? She just limited herself to what that cake could do. And that could sustain her for how many days? And then she would have gotten what she said that from the beginning. We'll eat this and we'll die. See, behind every natural thing, there's a spiritual thing. And we can't forget that. I did a message a while back on the unseen realm and how the unseen is more real than the seen. And there are things that are taking place in the spiritual realm when we do things in the natural. And a lot of times God is just looking for obedience. A lot of times God is just looking for, will they trust in me? Let's look at one last passage. We've looked at people who didn't have anything and what God required of them. But let's go to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at a man that had everything. Matthew chapter 19. We're talking about this year making a change in our finances. And the first thing that has to take place is you understand that you don't own your money. And in Malachi, he gives a command, not an optional deal. If you feel like giving 10%. I mean, there are churches that preach that. Just give what you can. No, he requires 10%. I don't require it. And guess what? If you give it to Pastor Mark, then you're going to get what I can give you. Thank you. That's all I can give you. I can't give you 30, 60, and 100 fold. I'm sorry. But when you give it to God, if you're just giving it to Anchor Faith Church, then you'll get what Anchor Faith Church will get you. An end of the year contribution report that shows you your giving for the year. I'm sorry. I, I, I do not have the power to give you. Now, here's what's exciting. Now, let me throw this in there real quick. We just saw in Malachi where he said he will open up the windows of heaven. You know what he means by windows of heaven? He doesn't literally mean that there's a, there's a window up in the sky with a turn crank on it. He's up there, okay, let's, let's roll it open. Let's throw out some dollar bills and some coins and let's shower them down with some blessings. You know what he means by that? You, you've heard me say this, that when the kingdom of God comes and lives inside of you, now we are required to be the kingdom of God in the earth. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. So the only way your job is seeing the kingdom of God is through you. When you act like the kingdom and you show the kingdom to people. That's the only way this earth is showing it. If man stops existing, then God's only access in the earth is through mankind. So you know what he means by window of heaven? You become a window of heaven. I become a window of heaven. That means that somebody will bless you. You become the kingdom to somebody. You become, you get to show people what heaven is like. You get to show heaven. And when the windows of heaven are open, 
That's why we have to be obedient. Because God's trying to use you to get blessing to someone else. God's done it to me. Hey, we, uh, this much you need to give to this person. And I'm already thinking of ten other things I need to do with that much. But guess what? I'm a window of heaven. And I am how God is going to bless that person. We think this thing's just magically going to appear. They're going to get a check in the mail from some anonymous person and they're not going to be able to track it down. And It's just going to fall out of the sky or they're just going to find $20 on their bed one day. I, this is silly stuff, but we are the window of heaven. You are how God is trying to meet someone else's need. And guess what? There's somebody else out there that is being that needs to be obedient to meet your need. Just as much. You've got to be obedient. So we are those windows of heaven. But look at this in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came to him and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? There's another passage that says, What do I need to do to enter the kingdom? To enter the kingdom of God. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now this first two verses, he's already, Jesus is identifying that he's not, this man does not perceiving him as Jesus, the Son of God. He calls him good teacher. He doesn't call him Son of God. He doesn't call him Son of David. He doesn't call him Jesus Christ. He doesn't call him by any of those. He doesn't call him Lord. He doesn't call him Rabbi. He calls him good teacher. And then Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one that is good, but God. But was Jesus God in the earth? Was Jesus good? Yes, but he's identifying, you don't even know who I am. And you don't know what I have to give you. He's already pulling from him, from him, just like any other person. So he says, he said to him, uh, where are we at? Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? He just told him, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus said, you shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are the Ten Commandments that we know, a few of them. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? He's saying, I've been obeying those commands. I've been doing those since I was a child. I'm doing them. But what did, you, what did God ask for from the Israelites in Exodus chapter 25? Tell them that they must give willingly from their heart. God is not looking for just action. God is not looking for you just to do stuff. There's got to be a heart behind it. And that's the first thing he identifies it. He says, okay, verse 22, oh, verse 21. Jesus said, Jesus said to him, okay, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now, a lot of pastors have taken this and twist it around. See, God wants us to be poor. God wants us to have nothing. God doesn't want us to have things. That's why he told this man to get rid of everything you have. But that is not what Jesus is saying in this verse. Jesus identifies you have a heart problem. 
It's not about what you do. It's not about if you honor your father and your mother and you don't steal and you don't commit adultery. You have a heart issue. So here's what we're going to do. You are a rich man. You are a rich young ruler. And you have many things. I have just now identified what your heart is tied to. So, if you really want to have eternal life, if you really want to come follow me, then let me test you. Who is your God? Because he sure didn't call Jesus his Lord. He didn't come to him saying, Lord, what do I need to do to have eternal life? So Jesus knew, I'm not Lord. You have another God. And we know this over in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus says, You man cannot serve two masters. And what does he mention? You will serve either God or Probably never thought of it that way, but money is a God. And what is a God? A God is one that dictates or calls the shots in your life. We should not be in a position where if God says, write this person a check for this amount of money, to have to go back and look and and get permission from our checkbook. We should just be obedient. Just be obedient. He's not going to ask you if you don't have it. You may have something else you need to do with it. But he's just looking for obedience. Who's Lord? Who's in authority? Who is God? So I have just talked to both sides of the spectrum. I talked to people that may be lacking and may not have. And what's he asking for? Bring me what you got. And now we're talking to people that may have, and it may not be nothing for them to write a tithe check. may not be anything. We've got that abundance, we've got that provision, and thank God. But now he's taking it past just writing the check, and just the action of tithe. That's why I didn't stop with, you have to give the tithe. Because you do have to give the tithe. There is no option there. That is what the Bible says. Whatever you make, when you get that paycheck, If you need a calculator, get a calculator. What is one-tenth of this amount right here? And write that tithe to the church, to his house, that there will be food in his house, that the lights will be on, that the door will be open because we didn't pay rent, that the air will be on. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that the heat was on today. I came in here last night on the way back from Florida, and I knew I'm going to need to turn that stuff on tonight. I ain't going to wait till in the morning, because I get here sometimes about 5, 5.30 in the morning on Sundays, and I wasn't going to wait 30 minutes or an hour for this thing to get up to, from whatever it was. I didn't even want to look. I just turned it on and went home. But thank God we were able to do that. And what's he saying? Bring the tithe. But see, it's not just about Okay, God, I'll give you the tithe. One, he said, willingly, out of their heart. And then we know that when we give into his kingdom, I'll tell you right now, for some of us, uh, this is where the change is. And I told you 